Cortland tries to enjoy everything, tries to find the silver lining wherever he can. Life is just a bundle of joy. This is the AMC Mayfair Witches podcast, and I am your host, Amy Nicholson, writer, critic, podcast host, and witch in training. Each week, I will be shepherding this coven as we talk about the new catfight-filled, maybe black catfight-filled episode of Mayfair Witches. I'll be asking the questions you want answers to, like, where can I get Uncle Cortland's brocade jacket? And today we have just the right person to answer that question, here to discuss the fourth episode titled Curiouser and Curiouser. We've got Uncle Cortland himself, played, of course, by the one, the only, Harry Hamlin. This episode really sets a lot of things on fire, so this is your warning. Watch the fourth episode and then come back and spend some intimate time with me and Harry, because we are going to be getting into everything, including snake erotica. It is time to rattle our tails. So it was you. You told everyone I was dead. I'd do it again. Things don't end well for the women in this family. Episode four is basically two funerals and an arson. Perfect occasions to get the family together. Our first funeral is back in 17th century Scotland. And a ye old woman-only Scottish funeral honestly looks cathartic. A bit creepy, but cathartic. Back in present-day New Orleans, we have a much stuffier funeral to attend. The funeral of Deirdre Mayfair. But for the Mayfairs, a funeral is also a wrestling ring for the family members who are fighting for power and fighting over Rowan's allegiance. Aunt Carlotta and Uncle Cortland are just at each other's throats. Aunt Carlotta and Uncle Cortland are also both on the hunt for a family heirloom, Deirdre's necklace, which seems connected to Lasher. Carlotta sees Lasher choosing Rowan, and Carlotta decides she's had enough of this drama. So, very reasonably, she decides to set the Mayfair house on fire, with both herself and Rowan trapped inside, and to put the marshmallow on top of this flambe. When Cyprian rushes in to save Rowan, Carlotta accidentally stabs him. Oh my, this is all making me feel a little bit better about my own family hijinks. I'm going to dig into all of this drama and more with my guest, Harry Hamlin. Harry, hello. Welcome to the show. Hi, Amy. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm Harry Hamlin, and I play Cortland Mayfair. Boy, oh boy, yes, you do. So, (laughs) Harry, Cortland Mayfair seems irritated that, you know, as a male, he's not in line for which powers. (laughs) And I'm thinking as an actor, you two never get summoned to play proper witches. Proper witches are usually played by women. And I'm wondering, does that bum you out? Never getting to play the titular witch with all of that power? You know, I hate to admit this, but uh, I've never desired to have powers, you know, because people ask me, if you could have a power, what power would you like to have? And I always think of the myriad stories about people who are granted powers or three wishes or whatever. And if you remember, they always turn out really bad. Somebody gets their first wish and then their second wish, then they go to their third wish. They think they can wrap the whole thing up, but no, it just gets worse and worse and worse. So I'll take what I've got and be happy with it. Well, fair enough. I mean, what you've got is pretty great. Like, I think of you as being an actor who can just do it all. You know, you've fought stop motion skeletons, (laughs) you've fought lawyers, you've fought ad agencies. 
you have really, I feel like at this point in your career, proven yourself in Hollywood and that you're able to choose what you want to act in. I imagine kind of at your leisure, like if you don't want to do something, you don't have to do it. So I'm curious then what makes you say yes to a project? Okay. Maybe you can tell how much fun I'm having. It's just when I read the character, I said, I got to play this guy. I haven't had a role offered to me like this in years and years. It's kind of getting back to my roots, doing character work again, and somebody whose heart beats at a different rate than mine does, and trying to figure out how to put that out there as a character on screen. That's the challenge for me. And that's why I took the part, because it seemed like a really delicious challenge. I mean, if I can say something declarative, possibly incendiary... I do think that you have the show's best costumes. And I was wondering, like, you know, does putting on one of those brocade jackets get you in that state of mind? Of course. Yeah, no. Janie Bryant who does the costumes. She's like a genius, absolute genius when it comes to wardrobe. And so, yeah, she knows exactly what to put on me that'll make me feel like the character. We did the same thing on Mad Men together, and we have a very special relationship. So, yeah, when she showed me the brocade jacket from episode one, she got all excited. She says, oh, my God, wait till you see this jacket. In the case of Cortland, clothes definitely make the man. I mean, I've seen you rock some good jackets on red carpets, but was there anything here that you were like, this should go home to the Hamlin estate. No. <laughs> no, he and I do not share the same wardrobe tape. Sartorially, we're completely different. However, <laughs> as Cortland, I, I love the clothes. I mean, the clothes are to kill for, right? I think they are to literally kill for. I think he would kill people if it came between him and his jacket. But I heard two rumors about you on set. Let me run them by you. The first is that between scenes, you are actually a sweatpants guy. Oh my God, absolutely not. I mean, if you wear sweatpants in New Orleans in the summer, you will sweat till you don't exist anymore. <laughs> what I did put on between scenes was a very, very thin pair of extremely thin cotton shorts. How short are these shorts? Well, I mean, they cover up the family jewels, but they're short enough so that I, you know, my legs get plenty of exposure to the warm, humid New Orleans air. Okay, I guess I have some bad intel. I will go back to my sources. I will let them know about your short shorts. <laughs> well, then rumor two is that as you're wearing these non-sweatpants now, we're going to be very clear about that, you walk around set with a guitar. Well, I do play the guitar. It's one of those things that, you know, I spent years waiting for scenes to be lit, you know, kind of reading magazines or even reading books. And I would always fall asleep. So I got the guitar, I picked it up about 10 years ago, and I said, you know, I'm going to learn how to play this sucker. Are you playing known songs or are you making up your own? I make up my own songs. Are they kind of spur of the moment? Like you're walking around and you're like, there's Annabeth Gish, she's wearing a green dress. <laughs> Can you do my lyrics for me? Because <laughs> so, I do a lot of instrumentals, but I don't have enough lyrics. But the Annabeth Gish one could be a great song. We could collaborate. <laughs> I'm absolutely down. Yeah, you do music, I do lyrics. Yeah, I, I need a lyricist, you know. <laughs> but I am curious. I want to talk a little bit more about this episode because we learn here that Cortland has a daughter, Josephina. Let's listen to you guys chat about some funeral prep. Daddy, come on. We need to get there before Carlotta does. Josephina, I'm enjoying the news. I'm not let my sister ruin my morning. You really want Carlotta in charge of Rowan's first impression of the family? My sister carries all the robes she needs to hang herself. Besides, Rowan seems like a smart girl. She's a doctor, after all. She'll, she'll see what's what. Still, hurry up. It's hard to hurry on a day like today. I certainly hope they catch whoever killed her. Whether they catch him or not, he will be punished. <laughs> 
I'm sorry, but Cortland is enjoying the news? Cortland tries to enjoy everything, tries to find a silver lining wherever he can. Life is just a bundle of joy. (laughs) (laughs) What is Cortland's relationship like with his daughter? I mean, they seem actually pretty close. Well, they are pretty close. You know, I mean, Corlin's distracted by the fact that he, he's got to be the patriarch in this family of witches. So he's he really considers the witches that he's got to take care of and wrangle more of his family than his daughter. I'm close with her, but we're not like close father and daughter. I, I feel closer to Deidre and closer to Rowan in the long run than I do to her. I mean, I must say, your Southern accent is mellifluous. Mellifluous? Yes, Mellifluous. Your character feels so believably from New Orleans in this show. And I'm sure part of that is because you're actually able to film in New Orleans, which was obviously such a major city to Anne Rice. But I'm wondering, after you lived there for a few months, can you give us the Harry Hamlin tour of New Orleans? Like, what are the meals that you must eat? Well, you know, everyone had talked about how great the food was. And I went out to a fancy restaurant one night and I was like, oh, no, this was not good. It was not good at all. Then I found place called Lucy's Retired Surfer Bar. And it's a little hole-in-the-wall place. And that's really where I hung out. I hung out at Lucy's. I'm going to repeat this back to make sure I have this right. Lucy's Retired Surfer Bar. I'm saying that twice because I want to go there and I don't want to forget about it. (laughs) When I'm in New Orleans, I always see people walking around with those giant drinks. Huge. You know, like 36 inches of, of a magical potion of booze. 36 inches of what? Take your poison, man. <laughs> really? Mm-hmm. Okay, I'll take 36 <laughs> inches of, of Rinna wine, of our new wine. How about that? Oh, classy. I mean, for listeners who don't know, Rinna wine is a line of wines from Harry's wife, Lisa Rinna. It is very, very classy, everybody. But Harry, I have to know, if you are drinking 36 inches of Rinna wine, do you have to keep your pinky out the whole time? If you have the right pinky ring on, which I do in the show, by the way, and that that pinky ring was what helped define the character for me, and that was Janie Bryant, once again, who's the wardrobe person, came up with this little pinky ring. If I had the right pinky ring on and I was drinking 36 inches of Rinna wine, I would definitely keep that pinky up in the air. I love that. I would cheers you as well. <laughs> I've never had 36 inches of anything. I'm going to think about my life in 36 inches from now on. <laughs> it's a whole new way to look at things. Yeah, there's been the metric system and now there's the Hamlin system. <laughs> okay, but going back to your perfect New Orleans accent, how did you perfect that accent? Was it just spending time there? So years and years ago, I was asked to audition for a television production of Streetcar Named Desire. When I was in acting school at ACT in San Francisco, Tennessee Williams, who wrote Streetcar Named Desire, was doing a play at ACT. And I I went up to Mr. Williams one day and I said, excuse me, sir, but did Marlon Brando get it right when he did Stanley? Because it was considered this tour de force performance. But he just looked at me and he, he said, son, go back and read the play tonight and come back and tell me what you think. Now, this is long before VHS, or you couldn't go and just rent the movie. It either came into town and you saw it or you didn't. And I had seen Streetcar years before, but I did have a copy of the play, and I did read it that night. And I went back to him the next day, and I said, I I read it very closely, and and it seems to me that Stanley Kowalski was born and raised in New Orleans. But I did not get that from the way he portrayed it. And Tennessee Williams just looked at me and winked, and he said, good boy. That's all he said. You got a good boy from Tennessee Williams? 
I got a good boy from Tennessee Williams. I did. And a, and a smile and a wink. <laughs> and so I never pursued it with him after that. But then, then years later, I was asked to audition for this. And I said, you know, I can't do it like Marlon Brando did it. So immediately on that afternoon, I went to the airport and bought a ticket to New Orleans with a tape recorder and a camera. And I said, I'm going to find Stanley Kowalski, the guy I'm going to play, not what Marlon Brando did. I ended up on Decatur Street at some flea bag bar at about three o'clock in the morning, sitting next to a big fire plug of a guy who uh, turned out to be a Polish truck driver. And Stanley Kowalski was Polish in the play. I said, would, would you mind if I tape record some scenes in the play? And I said, could you read these? He, he read it. He says, you come in here, you sprinkle the place with powder, you spray perfume all over the place. You Pretty soon you think you're queen of the Nile. <laughs> he was Stanley Kowalski. He was perfect. He was the guy, Polish truck driver, born and raised in the Ninth Ward. So I go back my audition to John Ehrman, who was the director at the time, and I, I did it for him. And, and he... He thought it was horrible. No. Oh, yeah. He didn't get it at all. No. Yeah. He After hated, all that? He just hated it. But I had the accent, you know, and I've had it ever since. <laughs> <laughs> Is this the first time you've gotten to break it out? That's the first time I've been able to bring it out. That's right. So that was, that was in 1985 when I had that experience in New Orleans. And you've just had it in your pocket this whole time? Yeah. I would trust somebody with that accent. I actually kind of in this show, I've been going back and forth on Cortland a lot, like how much to trust him. You know, I'm still pretty upset about whatever happened to poor Patrick. Oh, you're shaking your head at me. Okay. All right. I see that. Okay. Then good. Then I don't feel bad saying this to your face. I don't trust you at all. I don't trust you at all. But you do have this really genuinely tender moment at the funeral. You're standing over Deirdre's coffin. You tuck your pocket scarf into her neckline to cover that scar on her throat. And I really thought that detail was touching. And it made me believe you just a little bit when you claim to be a softie. Well, I think Corlin is a soft, and he says pretty as a peach, I think, when he puts that scarf down on her. Yeah. My relationship to Deidre was really complicated, though. And that's what, you know, I think it comes out in the funeral scene, how torn I am by the whole thing. What I do respect about him, though, is that he seems to have a lot of trust in Rowan to handle things. He and Carlotta are vying for Rowan's attention, but he continually, at the end of the day, is like, I trust Rowan to have good judgment, to judge Aunt Carlotta for herself. I mean, do you think he's being passive or do you think he's trusting in her strength? I think he's terrified of her. Because remember, Cortland doesn't have any powers. What he can do is manipulate using the sly, cunning wiles that he's learned in his life how to manipulate women. But in the long run, I think you know as well as I that women normally have the last word, especially a woman who has the kind of powers that Rowan is discovering that she has. And I don't think she's discovered anywhere near how powerful she is at this point. Yes, Rowan is very powerful, which is why I think Cortland and Carlotta are fighting over her at the wake. Let's take a listen. Oh, please don't scare her with your superstitious nonsense. I am the only one looking out for her soul. Oh, like you looked out for Deidre's? I did the best I could. She kept your mother's light under a bushel until she could snuff it out entirely. How dare you! You weren't here day in and day out, bathing her, feeding her, seeing to it that she was still breathing. I have always had to do the hard parts in this family while you play the master of ceremonies. Brava, sister dear. <laughs> After you held Dieter hostage for 30 years, you somehow made yourself into the victim. Ooh. You look very proud of yourself, and I believe you should, because I think the scene is delicious, and you and Beth Grant are just going at it. Yeah. 
No, she's great. The perfect Carlotta. She calls her the master of ceremonies, and she seems to mean it as an insult, but I think it kind of sounds pretty cool. Well, in, in that I am manipulating all these people around me, I think that's what she's referring to, is that the master of ceremonies, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make sure that things go my way, and that when Rowan re-enters the family, I'm going to make sure that she comes back in the family the way I want her to come back in the family. That's my job. So Cortland lives in a house full of powerful women. You also live in a house full of powerful women. Would you allow them to have witch powers? No. They already have witch powers. No. No more powers. No. Are you kidding me? They're powerful enough. (laughs) But what's interesting in this show, though, and especially in this episode, is that, you know, we're talking about the legacy of these Mayfair women. But here in this episode, we also have a scene where Cortland talks about his father. And it seems like one of the only times anybody mentions a man from the Mayfair family. That feels really intentional. What do you think Cortland's relationship was like with his father? Well, we're going to find out. It was a very strained relationship. And he seems to be revering his father in this scene, but their relationship was not good at all. And we're going to find that out as time goes on. The typical scion of a family like that there's always going to be father-son rivalry. And though I talk lovingly about my father in this scene, I never felt good enough around my father. He always made me feel like I was less than. And I think that's why I'm parties as much as I do and drink as much as I do and try to cover up the pain as much as I do. And then I also have to return to the responsibility that I have to make sure that this family of witches stays together and continues to be prosperous. What exactly is the family business? <laughs> Wouldn't you like to know? <laughs> <laughs> well, one thing that Cortland really knows how to do well is party. I wouldn't be surprised if the family business was party planning. <laughs> I mean, he is the party king. In the very first episode, Lasher says there is always a party at Uncle Cortland's. And he's right. We go to your house. There you are. And here you are getting your serious introduction, lounging around at your own party with a snake. Is that a real snake? That is definitely a real snake. That was a real snake? Definitely a real snake. That was a 10-foot-long Burmese python. We shot that scene early on when I first got there. And then after they saw, you know, how Cortland was evolving as a character, like after five or six episodes, they came to me and they said, listen, we want to reshoot that opening because the opening that we shot doesn't really do Cortland justice, you know. So we're going to have you either with an alligator or a snake. Which do you prefer? And I said, I don't really know. I think I have to audition both the alligator and the snake. And so they brought first the alligator, which is about a four and a half foot long alligator. And that alligator needs to go back to acting school because it was wooden, didn't know its lines, didn't know what to do, right? Totally blew the audition. What were you doing in that audition with it? You were like, Hello, Mr. Alligator. Well, Will you sit on my lap? Or I was trying to get a rise out of it. You know, I, I did a little Shakespeare. It didn't help. And uh, did a little Cortland. didn't help. I couldn't get a rise out of this alligator. I said, you know, what have you been taking, like, quaaludes or something? Because the alligator was not, like, happening. So uh, I said, well, bring in the snake. And let's see if the snake has some action, right? So the snake came in. And... Uh, This 10-foot-long snake and I got along great. I mean, curled up right next to me, you know, we almost French kissed because that snake has a tongue like you wouldn't believe. And so I said, well, hire the snake for sure. So the next day we shot the snake scene. I think it worked out. I'm having my toes not sucked, but rubbed anyway. Because 10 feet, it can wrap around your feet? 
Well, no, there was another guy who was who was working on oh, my right. feet, and then then the I'm snake. I'm sorry, I was still thinking about the snake yeah. and his tongue, and I yeah. was really just imagining all sorts of things. Really? Yeah. Uh, what exactly were you imagining? imagining? I'm, I'm still imagining them, <laughs> okay. and a woman gets to have her secrets. <laughs> Does holding a snake like that make you feel more Uncle Cortland? No, no. Holding a snake like that was like. I hope the fucking thing doesn't strangle me or bite me while I'm holding it because I, I don't want to have to do this twice. And at one point, the snake came up right next to my head and it went, oh. And I thought, oh no, this snake's gonna, it's gotten really mad at me. It's about to bite me. But it turns out that sound is the sound of it breathing because its lungs are four feet long. So when it breathes, it makes this sound when i found that out i wasn't so freaked out i mean did you ever go to a party where slash was there with one of his snakes no oh. <laughs> too bad right that is too bad <laughs> the most exciting time of my life was interviewing slash and he brought out his cell phone and he started showing me his homemade pictures of his snakes homemade pictures well i guess iphone made uh-huh personal portraits okay <laughs> i do have a snake file on my phone actually yeah a snake file? I have a snake file. You know how you you take pictures and you and you put snakes, put them into a file on your phone and your photos. And I actually have a file that's entitled snakes. Is it pictures of all sorts of snakes or just this one most beloved snake? I got a a video of two snakes fucking, <laughs> two rattlesnakes fucking. No, I mean and. Wait, um... There's a beautiful coral snake there. I, there's a lot of snakes around where I live. Oh, these are these are videos you've taken yourself. These are videos I've taken myself. Can you see the two getting it on there? Oh my god, you took this beautiful snake making love video. Yeah, I did. It's a it's snake porn. Wow, what I am seeing is two snakes. They're standing very tall. They're swaying at each other. Yeah, but their bottom parts are connected. Oh, they're all tangled up. I feel as though I've just become a more sophisticated person. Is that your first snake porn? That is my first snake porn. <laughs> you are a snake pornographer <laughs> since you shot that video. I guess so. I'm going to take that off my resume, though. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I think I just made things really awkward, um, which is great, which is great for you, because Uncle Cortland specializes in making things awkward. But we have to talk about the ending of this episode, where Aunt Carlotta also creates a bit of an awkward situation. Carlotta decides that Rowan is too far gone to save, and she tries to kill her. She tries to burn this house to the ground. Let's take a listen. I commend you, Deidre, to Almighty God. I entrust you to your Creator. May you rest in the arms of the Lord who formed you from the dust of the earth. May Holy Mary, the angels, and all of the saints welcome you into the bosom of the Lord. For Deidre, redeem her soul from evil, O Lord. For Rowan, redeem her soul from evil, O Lord. <laughs> I mean, I have to say, based on Carlotta's behavior in this scene, I do think Cortland is winning in the fight to win over Rowan. But I'm curious, Carlotta seems to be a true believer in Christ, but what does Cortland think about religion? I don't think he thinks about it much. The way I see Cortland, he is definitely not a religious person, definitely secular, but he knows where his bread is buttered, and that's 
the family. You know, he needs to make sure that that lineage continues. Now that he knows Rowan is Rowan, he has to protect her with everything he has. Does that mean we're rooting for him a little? Oh, absolutely. Cortland's a great guy. I think I want you to look me in the eye and say, Cortland's a great guy, and make me believe you. Cortland is a great guy. Oh my God. That was actually pretty impactful. There were some eyebrows raised in there, some sincere eyes. You gave me the puppy eyes. I'm going to trust you. I'm nervous about it, but I'm going to trust you, Harry. (laughs) Well, Harry, this has been so fun. And before you leave, we are going to end with a tiny segment that we call Witch Fulfillment. Where we ask people about the choices they would make as a witch. And since you have been very clear that you don't want to be a witch, then I want to ask you, of all your travels, of all the places you've been, if the witches of New Orleans had to go somewhere else to live, where do you want to send these witches? So is this to send them somewhere so that they can make mayhem? Or is this to send them somewhere where they will feel at home? I will leave that choice up to what you think the witches deserve. New York City. Send them to New York City (laughs) and let them have at it. (laughs) Then we'll see some mayhem. Oh, I love it. Witches doing loops around the the Empire State Building. (laughs) Witches standing in Times Square saying, take a photo with me. I'm a witch. There's a lot of people doing that already, but I think these witches might be able to actually do something about it. I'm into it. Let's let the witches go rage. And you know what, Harry? Let's go over there with 36 ounces of of Rinna wine, pinkies out, and cheers them as they have their magical New York adventure. (laughs) (laughs) Harry, this has been so fun. Yeah, lots of fun, Amy. And continued success with all the stuff you're doing. Same to you. Same to you. Wow. Okay. Harry is a little cagey about Cortland. That's fine. But, you know, he's so charming, and Cortland is so charming. I want to start a band with Harry Hamlin. Can we just, like, write some jams for us? I mean, I'm thinking, of course, we need, like, romantic snake songs. Hey, snake, I'm a snake. You want to get together in this grass? Or maybe more of a power ballad. Hey, baby, I'm a snake. Hey, baby, you're my snake. All right, I'm going to need some help. Please help me help Harry create the band of his dreams and leave a message with some better snake tunes. I think we could really use your brain power here. Continue to keep calling in with your thoughts questions, reactions, call 888-994-WTCH. That's 888-994-9824. Your message might be included right here in future episodes of the podcast. Before we go, I have another ingredient to add into our witch's cauldron. It's witch's aspirin, also known as willow bark, which is used to turn pain into enlightenment. In this episode, Aunt Carlotta is a true believer of Christ, but she does some pretty wicked things in the name of God. Still, even though Carlotta is a villain, I can feel the love for her in this story, and I think that goes back to Anne Rice's own history with Christianity. Anne grew up as a devout Catholic, religious day school, the whole works, but when she turned 18, she renounced Catholicism. She had this complicated relationship with religion for her entire life, and you can really see that come through in her stories. Vampires are, after all, literally called unholy creatures, and witches are women who were persecuted by the church for worshiping the devil. But she couldn't shut the door on spirituality altogether. In 1998, eight years after the first book in the Mayfair Witches trilogy was published, Anne returned to Catholicism. 
She even wrote a series of books about the life of Jesus Christ, titled Christ the Lord. But even then, her relationship with religion stayed rocky. It was always a push and pull. As Anne described it, she had a, quote, yearning, a nostalgia, a grief toward Catholicism. But also, she said, I had this idea lodged in my head. I could never go back. The longing was tremendous. The desire was tremendous. Next week on the podcast, we'll be talking about episode five, titled The Thrall, with Tongai Teresa, who plays Cyprian Greaves. Make sure to watch Mayfair Witches every Sunday night on AMC, or stream it early on AMC+. For an extended 30-day free trial of AMC+, go to amcplus.com and use the promo code MAYFAIRPOD. That's Mayfair, P-O-D. Podcast episodes drop on Sunday nights after the show, so subscribe wherever you listen. And thank you for listening to the AMC Mayfair Witches podcast. This is an AMC Networks podcast produced in partnership with Pineapple Street Studios. Our executive producers at AMC Networks are Kevin Dreyfus, Celia Quinnett, and Brian Swarth. Our executive producers at Pineapple are Gabrielle Lewis, Barry Finkel, Max Linsky, and Jenna Weiss-Berman. Our managing producer is Aaron Kelly. Our producer is Ben Goldberg. Ari Saperstein is our editor. Mixing and engineering by Hannes Brown. I am Amy Nicholson. Thank you again to Harry Hamlin and the video files on his cell phone for joining us. 